Hey, you're listening to When Banned Things Happen to Good People, a podcast dedicated to censorship and the arts. My name is Todd Sullivan, and my lovely co-host is Oren Barter. Hi. And we are talking about the autobiography of Malcolm X. Hey, Oren. How are you? <laughs> are you just drinking? I was just drinking it. And I didn't <laughs> expect to have that little noise come out of my lips. But... <laughs> I wasn't expecting that noise to come out of your lips either, quite frankly. Uh, Is it just me or like, were we just doing this? It seems like we just did this the other day. What's that? Oh, yeah. It Record hasn't been a podcast. that long since we did the last one. Yeah. Yeah, we're badly trying to get our schedule back in order again after some delays on the the third episode so you know what's really funny though Mm-mm. is that like i'm kind of caught up on the reading but it wasn't because i remembered that you told me we were going to do one really soon i'm mm-hmm. just like you know what last time i was I, w- I wasn't ready i'm gonna get a jump start on it i'm gonna have all the all the chapters <laughs> done way before we record the next one and now i'm like just finished reading part of chapter 14 and we're doing another one and i'm really glad that i had that switch in mindset <laughs> Otherwise, yeah I'd be fucked. I'm, I'm pretty glad too um although to be fair we didn't get entirely through all of the chapters that we planned to for this episode because of the the really quick turnaround on it we've only going to be covering chapters 11 through 14 instead of 11 through 15 we didn't quite make it to 15 this time but oh so we dropped um, a chapter and i still didn't read all, read all of it yeah yeah. Um, anything new in your life these days? Um, yeah. Uh, lost a little bit of weight. I put on about like, well, it started with the quarantine 19. <laughs> and I think it became the quarantine 25. Yeah. By the end of it. And uh, I just decided to kind of cut back a bit on beer, which sucked, and cut back a bit on sweets and do a little bit more stuff mm-hmm. outdoors and i'm nice. happy to say i'm down i was at 185 i'm 171 this morning so oh bravo yeah yeah i don't have a, a scale here so i have no idea what my weight is like but i i did start uh intermittent fasting about four or five weeks ago um as a way of treating my diabetes i'd heard it can do good things for weight loss and for um, reducing your, uh, insulin sense no insulin resistance. Um, and so far it has, you know, it's already been having a bit of an impact. I've been able to dial my insulin back a little bit and, uh, and still keep my blood sugar, uh, down where it should be. So hopefully it will continue to do good things because hey, right yeah, yeah. So we're both, you know, taking some steps to hopefully improve our, our health in these trying, terrifying times. Go um, us. Go us, exactly. We're, we're like a beacon of hope. In this dark, dark time. <laughs> um, before we get into um, the meat of this episode, just wanted to throw out a quick correction over something that I kind of misstated last episode, which was that um, when Malcolm X was first being sort of brought into the Nation of Islam... I had mentioned that it was Ella who had come to him in prison and first sort of started 
pitching those ideas to him when it was actually uh, his sister Hilda. Um, Ella actually avoided joining the Nation of Islam for quite some time, uh, although she does eventually join during this section of the book. She was sort of like one of the last ones in the family to uh, to give herself up to that religion. Um, I guess she was you know a bit more on the stubborn side. But he also um, said that like sometimes the people who are the hardest to convert are the best converts. Yeah, yeah. that is true. I think he mentioned so that in specifically in regards to Ella <laughs> when Ella finally converted. So I'm assuming that maybe later on in the book we'll we'll see more of Ella's influence or Ella's um, part to play within the Nation of Islam. Possibly, perhaps. But I also get the feeling. Um, just based on the the way things are being worded at this point, and knowing the title of the next chapter, that we're going to start seeing some conflict between Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam in the upcoming chapters, the ones that we haven't read yet. Right. Um, for now, like I said, we're looking at chapters 11 through 14, which... In a lot of ways, you could almost call the autobiography of the Nation of Islam. Um, there's a, <laughs> a lot of material in these chapters talking about um, its history, its growth, its founders. Um, and in some places, uh, it almost feels like Malcolm is a supporting character to the Nation of Islam. Would you sort of agree with that? Well, I would say a supporting character to uh, Elijah Muhammad for sure. Yeah, um, I feel like, and like like you say, we don't know what's going to happen later on in the book, but uh, for his time when he became a member of the nation to now, um, his his love and respect for Elijah has been at the forefront, even above his own wants and desires and needs kind of a thing right so he's he really believes in this man and and really wants to spread his gospel and yeah i I would agree that that he's kind of like definitely in a supporting role yeah um so looking at chapter 11 which is called saved um that's sort of his initial growth and education about uh the nation of islam and and sort of beginning to spread the word of the nation of Islam to other inmates. Um, one of the things I sort of forgot to mention about Malcolm X's time in prison in the previous episode that was sort of mentioned in chapter 10 is he started to read a lot mm-hmm. and um, in fact began to sort of try to expand his education. Um, he began taking English programs and um, uh, penmanship training to improve his handwriting. Uh, And then we see in this chapter, he begins to sort of write a lot of letters on a regular basis, either to Mm -hmm. his family. And then I think it was uh, a letter a day to Elijah Muhammad as well. Well, I'm going to just jump in there. I'm not sure if, if he said he took penmanship classes, but I know he, he felt that his penmanship was, was bad. And, uh, I remember him saying that he just opened up a dictionary and started writing mm-hmm. it out. He wrote mm-hmm. an entire dictionary just to increase his understanding of words and also to better his penmanship. So, I, I mean, yeah, he would how write much out discipline. Does that take like, well, I guess <laughs> like, when you're in prison though, and you've got nothing yeah. but time. Yeah, I guess so. But still, I mean that you could just sit around and 
you don't have to do that. That takes that takes a lot of dedication, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you may be right about the penmanship classes. I seem to recall him saying something about that in chapter ten, but uh, my memory of that could be hazy. So, okay. but yeah, certainly he did. He did write out page by page of the dictionary, um, and then he would read it back like, afterwards and sort of use that to gradually learn the meaning of new words and and uh, and on and on like that. Well, because he said when he started reading, he was kind of just going through the motions, right? Like a lot of words he didn't understand. Mm-hmm. It had been yeah. so long since he had like actually understood a book. I think he, he dropped out in the seventh grade or eighth grade. I think he said eighth grade. Eighth grade. So how old? Like that's 13. And he's 20, 21 when he starts. Or 21, Prison, 22. Yeah. So, I mean, that's nine years without opening a book. And, and uh yeah, he said he, he went to the dictionary to try and learn the words so that he could start reading with understanding. And that's when his reading really took off. That's how I Maybe, understood it. Yeah. Um, and he also got interested in, in history. Mm-hmm. And uh, through history books and also through the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. And he said that he was quite sort of shocked to learn some of the horrors of slavery, which is, is interesting to think about uh, because I, I guess to a lot of us today, the knowing about sort of the, the uglier details of that era seem obvious to most of us now, but I guess, you know, at that time it was definitely more, suppressed i guess you know obviously the you know white people didn't want to talk about how bad black people had it and it certainly wouldn't have been covered in um you know his school curriculum which well yeah which is exactly one paragraph that, that one paragraph yeah. right yeah and so with with that kind of um with that kind of information and with you know the beliefs of the the nation of islam mm-hmm. he was he started to kind of spread the religion in in prison where i think it would probably be fairly easy and i think he even ex- explains this later in the book to convert and convince this largely black population that they have been pushed down by white society um because that's very much sort of the core tenet of the nation of islam as far as i can tell it's that the black race is the the one true race. The white man is the devil who has sort of kept them repressed for all these centuries and and they need to rise up and sort of reclaim their their nationhood or their identity, right? Um yeah, I think he did express a lot more about um leaving, gathering and leaving America. I don't think it was so much about rising and just staying put and being yeah that right. is i think true, that was a big yeah. part of it was was there was within the nation of islam there was supposed to be a large migration away from i the believe Western there world, was which they considered to be the, the white man's world which i mean rightly rightly so right yeah i believe yeah. there that was a, a tenet of of their religion that they there there was to be a return to africa mm-hmm. um but again it's all sort of um, everything happens in stages, right? 
So first, it's about it's about the growth of the church. It's about reaching people. It's about building mm-hmm. um, that belief, and in doing that, you know, remaining separated um, from um, the the white society, right? Yeah, and that was a big thing. Like, and he said it over and over again, um, how much he despises integration. Right, he thinks that uh, people who like black people who have integrated are they've been you know fed some sort of promise or or you know scraps as he said mm-hmm. from the table mm-hmm. and they you know even even when he was uh, going through his hustling days he he did not appreciate uh, the the black people who consider themselves high society um, in which he commented on you know they, they think they're high society because they serve the high society right they're mm-hmm. butlers and you know that's what they've been told is like the upper echelon for a black person and they're happy to 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 feel that kind of superiority over the the slums kind of a thing right mm-hmm. and yeah i think he's never really been a fan of integration so well, there was, I mean, speaking of, you know, the word choice of, of integration and, and other things, you know, there was a point later in the chapter where, you know, he was, I think it was when he was doing interviews, asked about, you know, why he wanted to segregate people. Right. And, you know, he corrected them by saying, like, segregation is when uh, one group forces another one to be separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, where what he wants to do is separate, which is sort of a mutual agreed upon thing and no one is is forcing it on anyone else it's just this is what we're going to do right. um and it, so yeah again it's not it's not so much about um it doesn't seem to be a message of sort of rising up and defeating the white no no yeah. society yeah there was but nothing just, about like overthrowing yeah yeah it was yeah just finding their own their own place yeah their own identity yeah um there was one weird bit in this chapter that I, I wanted to bounce off you to see what you thought of it. Okay. At one point while he's in prison, he talks about having this vision of a guy show up in his cell and just sort of sit there on a chair. He's very well dressed. Um, and he ends up, I, I can't remember if in that moment or if it's sometime later, but he ends up kind of coming to the conclusion that it was um, W.D. Fard, mm-hmm. who was the guy who actually founded the Nation of Islam, uh, who had who had disappeared from the face of the earth by this time? Uh, I think it was nineteen, yeah, nineteen thirty-four. Uh, he he vanished, um, and so far that vision, any reference to that vision doesn't seem to have come up since then. And it it kind of seems, I mean, I got, obviously he was well, recounting it as something that happened, but yeah. I wondered what it might mean in a, a larger picture, like what he might think that meant. He did bring it up one one other time. Did he? Um, yeah, he did. So when he was talking about, cause he, he, he brought it up in chronological order. I think when he was talking about his time in prison, he spoke about this dream being visited by this man, yeah. um, who wasn't black, but wasn't white. who wasn't red, but you know, he really had no, no race. He was, he described them as a person who, um, would be accepted by, any culture, I think, is the way he, that he put it, or or any would be accepted by either race. Mm-hmm. 
Am I right by saying that? Is that is that true to the book? I th- I think so. I don't remember. Um, but he does know he and honestly, I I can't remember right at the moment when it was, but I do remember him bringing that up again, and it was just kind of like a footnote. He was he hmm. kind of just brought it up like in that time that I was visited in my dreams by W. D. Fard. Speaking of the, you know, him, him talking to people in, in prison and spreading the nation of Islam in prison, there was uh, one part of the book uh, in this chapter that I wanted to kind of read because it, um, it kind of harkens back to what he talked about when he was in school and growing up and, and the sort of lost opportunity when his teacher told him like he would never, he could never possibly be a lawyer. Yeah. Um, he writes... You let this caged-up black man start thinking the same way I did when I first heard Elijah Muhammad's teachings. Let him start thinking how, with better breaks, when he was young and ambitious, he might have been a lawyer, a doctor, a scientist, anything. You let this caged-up black man start realizing, as I did, how the first landing of the first slave ship, the millions of black men in America, have been like sheep in a den of wolves. That's why black prisoners become Muslims so fast when Elijah Muhammad's teachings filter into their cages by way of other Muslim convicts. Mm-hmm. And it's, I imagine it's very true that, that that message to people in that condition, in that state, in that place, um, absolutely would, would have a huge impact. Well, and I think we discussed it in the previous episode, too, where, um, you know, through, through the game of hustling, through numbers game, or, or through, you know, selling, quote-unquote, reefers, um, still love that word, by the way. Yeah, I think we're in agreement on that. Um, But uh, how these, you know, more immoral, more legal pursuits uh, offered them a level of financial status that they were otherwise not, um, it wasn't available to them. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, so, I mean, these people who who, um, maybe desired... To be something, had the capacity to be something, to be someone, um, were consistently shut down, and the only place they could really be someone is on the streets, mm-hmm. right? And you know when he's when he's preaching this in in prison, you know a lot of these people, yeah, like you say, like maybe not even in prison, but just like uh, West Indian Archie, he talks about him. Um, I think I'm jumping ahead a mm-hmm. little bit here. Uh, and also backwards because he he often brings up his ability with numbers and how well he would have done in mathematics if he had had like you say different breaks yeah and more support mm-hmm. yeah no totally. absolutely absolutely like you say it's it's just really really plays to to what they've what they've been through their whole life right mm-hmm um, so moving on to chapter 12, which okay. is called Savior. Uh, Malcolm X gets out of prison on parole. Uh, he heads to Detroit, which I believe is home of the first um, temple of the Nation of Islam, with the intention of sort of learning directly from Elijah Muhammad or, you know, watching Elijah Muhammad speak. Um his brother gets him a job at a furniture store, um, and he has a few different jobs around this time. I think he ends up working at a 
at a GM plant after a while, um, or a Ford Motor Company plant. Um, but it's mostly about, you know, he's mostly focused on the nation of Islam. When talking with Elijah Muhammad, the advice that he had as far as sort of how to uh, increase the membership in the church is to go after young people, to recruit young people. He said, recruit them and the, the older generation will follow. Mm-hmm. And that ends up sort of being Malcolm's focus. So he starts uh, doing what I, I don't know if it's a term he came up with or it was commonly the term, but he starts doing what he calls fishing, which is uh, looking for recruits for the nation of Islam, uh, particularly amongst the young uh, and he ends up uh, looking quite often outside of Christian churches. Um, I guess the Nation of Islam held their services sort of later in the afternoon. And there was sort of this perfect period between when the churches would let out and when the Nation of Islam service would start, where they could sort of stroll around amongst the people leaving the churches and say, hey, do you guys want to come here uh, an alternate perspective? Do you guys want to come uh, hear somebody else preach? And uh, that, that proved somewhat successful for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and around this time, too, um, 1953 specifically, he becomes an assistant minister at Temple Number 1. Yeah, because he, he had quite a bit of trouble finding converts at first. He found it quite difficult, didn't he? Yeah, well, I think part of it was, I mean, he would talk about, you know, he would get maybe seven people in a room and speak to them. Mm-hmm. And I think he had a regular thing where, you know, at the end of, of his uh, his sermon or whatever, he would say, how many of you are ready to um, join the uh, Reverend Elijah Muhammad? Well, he would start um, with, like, how many of you believe what you have heard today? And then... You know, so many people would stand Right, yeah, up. exactly. And then he would be like, how many of you are willing to join the Nation of Islam and follow Elijah Muhammad? And then yeah. he said he was really disappointed with the amount of people that sat down for the for that one. Right. But there was always sort of a steady growth to it from mm-hmm. the sounds of it. Like, even if it was only one or two per night, it was still growing, even if slowly. But never as quickly as he wanted. Like yeah. He he was hoping that like, you know, everybody would stand up when he said, you know, how many of you believe what you have been told? And, you know, I'm sure he he was very disappointed with with this with the growth, the slowness of the growth. And there's sort of a period here in chapter twelve that goes a little bit into um some of the the specifics about the early years of the Nation of Islam about W.D. Fard, who is this very kind of mysterious figure. He shows up um, in, I I believe, Detroit, kind of with no history, Mm -hmm. um, claims to have been from the East, um, and starts kind of gradually teaching people um, this kind of modified version of Islam. Um. And I had some notes here on some of the things that he said about, you know, his religion, about the nation of Islam. There's no heaven and no hell. Um, Those were conditions in which people lived on the earth. And specifically, black men had been in hell for 
400 years. And, and uh, W.D. Fard had come to return them to where heaven for them was, mm-hmm. which was uh, back among their own kind in Africa. Um, and he also said that he, he was what was called the Mahdi, who is a prophet that will rule before the end times, according to some Islamic religions. As I understand it from my quick Googling, some Islamic religions believe in a Mahdi, some don't. Okay, now, did, did he specifically say that he was the Mahdi? Yes. Okay. Hang on, I'm looking for it now. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I asked him, said Mr. Muhammad, who are you and what is your real name? And he said, I am the one the world has been looking for to come for the past 2,000 years. I said to him again, said Mr. Muhammad, what is your true name? And then he said, my name is Mahdi. I come to guide you into the, li- the right path. So he, at least according to Elijah Muhammad, mm-hmm. uh, confessed to being the Mahdi. Uh, this is one of those cases quite often with religions where you have claims being shared as secondhand information. Right. So whether or not he actually did say that he was or did uh, you know, try to claim to be that, or whether that was something perhaps the Elijah Muhammad invented after the fact to um, conf- you know, I- increase his standing as the founder of the Nation of Islam. I mean, who knows, obviously. Well, because it, um, sa- it says that um, W.D. Fard makes him supreme minister of mm-hmm. the Nation of Islam before he mm-hmm. disappears. Yeah. Um, and then he just disappears. And no one, I guess, knows whatever happened to him. So, uh, and I noticed something too um, that I wanted to to read because I thought it was entertaining. But we kind of skipped over the fact that because I, I briefly thought it wasn't super relevant, and it may not actually be that relevant. But um, during this period, the um, the FBI comes to inquire why Malcolm X is not um, signed up for the Korean War. Right. Uh, he claims that it was because he didn't think they would take convicts, um, which he knew wasn't true, but they believed him, that he didn't know and that he thought that. But I thought uh, his, his comment, because he went in um, for the draft, signed all the documents, but when, um, when he signed up, he uh, signed up as a Muslim and as a conscientious objector. And there was this bit from the book that I liked. They asked if I knew what conscientious objector meant. I told them that when the white man asked me to go off somewhere and fight and maybe die to preserve the way the white man treated the black man in America, then my conscience made me object. Yeah. Yeah, that was... Which is a pretty concise argument. Yeah, absolutely. And... uh they marked his case as pending and uh, he never heard from them again. But it was one of those things too, because I think in when he was younger, there was, well, there was first draft for, I guess it would have been World War II that he went in and played crazy and didn't get called in. Yeah, it was like, yeah, if you give me a gun, I'm going to use it on, on whites. I think it was what yeah. he said, yeah. But the concept in both cases were the same. Like, here are circumstances where you know you've got the you know black people in america had already been exploited over and over and over and over again by by white people and now here was white society trying to force 
black men to go and die on their behalf, right? Like none of those black people ever wanted or ever asked to be part of American society. And now here they were being asked to go and end their lives to defend the very society that had exploited their families for generations, just kind of boggles the mind. So moving on to chapter 13, Minister Malcolm X, um, he begins to kind of travel around a bit and uh, he gets sort of sent out to start new temples in cities where there aren't any. So he's first sent to Boston. And by now he's, um, he's, he's a full-time minister in the Nation of Islam. He's left um, the furniture store and the Ford Motor Company and whatever else, other jobs he's had at that time, and has now dedicated himself full-time to the Nation of Islam. He goes to Boston and starts a temple there. Um, he goes to Philadelphia, starts a temple there, then goes to New York, where um, he works to start a temple there and goes to sort of reacquaint himself with some of the people that he'd interacted with in the past, like Sammy the Pimp mm-hmm. and West Indian Archie. Uh, Sammy the Pimp, turns out, had passed away. Uh, West Indian Archie was still around, but not doing well. Yeah, he was quite quite old at that point, I think. And from the description, too, it seemed like he was sick. Um, but they did have kind of the opportunity to get past the issues that they had in the past over that, you know, $300. Um, and they both kind of admitted that, eh, maybe I was wrong. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you were wrong. Maybe I was wrong. I don't know. It doesn't matter anymore, right? Yeah, I, I found that really interesting because at the time, obviously, that was the number one thing in his life. You know, um, he either he was going to kill West Indian Archie or West Indian Archie was going to kill him. And mm. that was one of the big reasons for him to leave Harlem. And I think he even says that to West Indian Archie. He's like, um, if it wasn't for our our fight, our our you know our hatred of each other. I wouldn't have left and leaving saved my life, I think is what he mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just, that was a, I think a really important thing for both of them to be able to, to get that kind of off their chest because I don't think, and I think they both said that neither of them wanted to kill each other really, but they yeah, kind of exactly. felt like, like they had to and, yeah, like a very different point of view from uh, how many years? Like ten years ago, or nine years? He was in prison for nine years, right? Yeah, and I guess I, he probably wasn't in Boston for that long. Maybe, maybe a year before he was arrested. So it's nine or ten years, right? Yeah, no, I I did really like that interaction that he had with West Indian Archie. Yeah. And, and, yeah, it was and, good to see them, you know, get past that and that uh, thing. And, and go ahead. No, just having the opportunity to do that because obviously he didn't have that opportunity to sort of have any final interactions with Sammy the Pimp, right? So it's always right. nice to have some kind of closure with people before they've passed away. 
and I think like like he said he, he tried to you know kind of put the feelers out for uh, Archie's um, he, he, he did he did express his love for the nation of Islam to Archie but he felt like he wasn't going to get a convert out of him right yeah exactly um, and and uh, but he did express to Archie again which he said a few times in the book uh, you know what if you had put your talents to work in the field of mathematics and you know Archie was kind of like yeah you know what if right yeah and uh, I think he said uh, neither of us said that it was never too late because they both kind of realized that he was you know nearing death's door mm-hmm Mm-hmm. No, it was a. I really did like that, that com- like, that interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, at about this point in the book, it it kind of drifts into some specific looks at elements of the Nation of Islam. Um, one of the things that uh, he spends some time writing about is the the code of the religion, the, the things that they are uh, not allowed to do. And I did want to sort of read these things out because there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he even sort of concedes that the one of the challenges that he faced in, in getting converts is convincing people to agree to these things, right? So here we go. Uh, Any fornication was absolutely forbidden in the nation of Islam. Any eating of the filthy pork or other infurious or sorry, injurious or unhealthful foods, any use of tobacco, alcohol, or narcotics. No Muslim who followed Elijah Muhammad could dance, gamble, date, attend movies or sports, or take long vacations from work. Muslims slept no more than health required. Any domestic quarreling, any discourtesy, especially to women was not allowed. No lying or stealing, no insubordination to civil authority, except on the grounds of religious obligation. That is quite the list. That's some strict ass shit right there. Yeah. I do wonder what's considered a long vacation from work. Like, can you take like a long weekend is okay? <laughs> like, is a week okay and two weeks is too much? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Whose discretion was that up to? I guess yeah. the minister, right? Because um, he he did he did speak about like his brother um, was kind of excommunicated from the nation of Islam, wasn't he? You know what? I I'm not sure if it really said what he did, but uh, Elijah Muhammad had excommunicated him, and uh, but then was, Malcolm comments that um, he was excommunicated for doing something that they would later find out Elijah Muhammad had been doing. Right. Yeah. And I do think that. it was. Like I think his brother was screwing around with the secretary at one of the the temples. I want right, to say be, because oh okay, because fornication was that that was like one of the first ones, right? Yeah, no fornication, no fornication, maybe and no dating. First, yeah, so you can't even accidentally get close to fornication. No dating. Yeah, no dating. Holy shit! Okay. Um, um, could not dance, gamble, date, attend movies or sports, or take long vacations from work. Wow. How do they find anybody? I guess that's you like do it like the, Malcolm does. That's like all the things I like to do. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess, you know, um, we're about to get to the, the part in this chapter where um, Malcolm gets married. And um, I guess we might as well just talk about that right now because it, 
that kind of lines up a little bit with some of these things that he can't do because um, his engagement kind of comes out of nowhere. Right. Um, he ends up, so while he's working at the New York temple and working to grow the New York temple, uh, he meets Betty X in 1956. Um, at this point in his, his life, he didn't really want to settle down, didn't want to deal with women. Um, he confesses in the book that he didn't trust women. Um, but I guess he notices this Betty X when she arrives. And, uh, you know, she seems smart and she seems maybe interesting. And so he starts to kind of check out her classes, but completely platonically. Right. Um, and one of the things they mentioned this time, too, is that at the temple, there were regular evening classes on things like how to be a proper um, Muslim wife or how to be a strong Muslim husband or... They had like um, martial arts training, I think, for the, the the fruit of Islam, the sort of security that they had. And so he went to some of her classes. Uh, and then because he noticed that she was smart and was interested in things, um, invited her to the Museum of Natural History. But through all this, but not, as a, date, not as a date, not as a date. Not as a date. Yeah, it's always not, like. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was just like, you know, I just I thought maybe she could get something out of it. Exactly. You know, she learned something. But like, um, I mean, come on. It was a date. It was a date. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then even, and then, you know, he starts wondering to himself, what if I did get married? Should I get married? Um, and then they talk about certain um, issues that you have to watch out for when marrying within the nation of Islam, which is like, there can't be too big a height disparity between you, right? Right. Man's, yeah. You know, one is too yeah. tall and one is too short. That makes a bad marriage. Um, did they have a then, specific for like the difference in height? Like there was some really <laughs> specific points. Yeah. I don't think they listed a specific difference in height. Like it has to, if anything more than, you know, 18 or 18, 18 inches or six inches. I don't know. Um, right, but right, one because, specific because, thing, because they had to be taller enough that the woman respected the man, but not too much taller as to have a great disparity between the two. Yeah. Yeah, it was really restrictive the 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 selection of of a of a of a wife. But um, the one sort of specific guideline that mm -hmm. blew me away was the best age um for a wife. Right. Which is half the man's age plus 7. Which is something I think a lot of us have heard, which is the number used nowadays to calculate what is the youngest girl <laughs> that you should date? Exactly. Yeah. Any younger and you're being creepy. Exactly. That's what they're, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's such a weird overlap. Like, I wonder, like, I have no idea where the current um, half your age plus seven number came from. It just sort of popped into pop culture as far as I'm aware. Mm -hmm. um, but is it accidental that like these two things are the, I'm not saying that was necessarily swipe from the nation of Islam, but it just seems like so weird that these two calculations are so specific. But. Well, I would say like, if it doesn't come, like if it wasn't swiped completely from the nation of Islam, then at least the reasons for it existing in the nation of Islam and the reasons for it 
entering pop culture would have the same root, I would think. Well, that's it's, what I mean. It's too I, big I of a coincidence. Wonder... It's too big of a coincidence just happened, you know, in two completely different situations. Right. Like, I yeah. wonder whether or not it has an even older history that we don't, we're not aware of. Yeah, yeah. That maybe the Nation of Islam drew from. And also, it allowed it to hiccup into current pop culture again. Because, yeah, exactly. It seems or way if too it's, weird that yeah, th- yeah. that specific calculation would end up, at, you know, showing up twice. Or, like you say, maybe it sprouted from the Nation of Islam and then was kind of ripped from that for use in, you know, ah, don't worry about it, man. You can date her, divide your age by half, and add seven. It's that's that's the golden rule. That, yeah. I mean, I guess unless you're 21, don't do that if you're 21. Okay, what's 21? What's half of 21? That would be 10 and a half. 10, 10, 10 and a half. 17 and a half. No, yeah, yeah, that's not awful. But okay, let's let's not go awful, 14. Seven plus seven is 14. <laughs> Actually, it kind of works. Maybe it does work. If you're if you're six, you should be dating a ten year old. (laughs) It kind of inverts itself at some point. (laughs) Oh god. Um, Uh, What what is is mine? I guess. How old are you? Be I'll be forty eight in August. Okay, twenty four. Twenty four. Thirty one. Thirty one. Yeah, forty eight. Thirty one. That doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility. Like. What what kind of like what age discrepancy is that? That's seventeen years. Seventeen no. years. Yeah, seventeen years. So I would have been graduating when they were born. Well, I mean, when you put it that way, it sounds creepy. But, <laughs> right. But I mean, a thirty-one-year-old—that's you know—that's an absolutely one hundred percent. Has been an adult for like a decade. So that's true. If if they're like, hey, Todd, I, you know, I know I'm only thirty-one, but you're like, okay, cool. If it's good enough for the Nation of Islam, it's good enough for us. <laughs> it's right? good enough for us. And so, after kind of struggling with this, um, he was on the road driving to somewhere. I can't remember where he was driving to. And he just decides in the car, I want to get married. Right. Pulls over, gets out of the car, <laughs> um, explains for some reason that he didn't even have her number with him and had to call directory assistance to get it. Um, calls up Betty X and just says, look, do you want to get married? <laughs> Which is and, the weirdest uh, proposal I've ever heard of. The weirdest. Uh, Most abrupt. Yeah, it's the, not just the proposal, but like the whole dating, not dating beforehand. Right. Um, right. And she agrees. Uh, and then I guess because he's decided it has to be done right away, um, uh, he heads to his brother's place and she flies out there, asks uh, him where they can get married with a whole lot of mess and waiting. And again, that was, that was where his words in the book, a whole lot of <laughs> mess and waiting. Um, he said they should go to Indiana, which they do. Then they get there and they find out that Indiana has changed the law. Uh, so then they went to Lansing, uh, where his brother Filbert lived, uh, and they found out they could get married in a day there if they rushed. And this is a lot of, um, this is a lot of mess, but maybe not a lot of waiting, mm-hmm. just to get married super quickly. It's a lot of driving, a lot of messing around, a lot of flying. Um, but they they finally get married, and then there's. 
kind of a time jump in the book because he just very quickly, in the case of source of a, a couple of paragraphs, talks about the four children they have, uh, or they had, uh, one by one, mm-hmm. um, when they moved into the, the house they currently live in. And then after all of that, finally confesses um, in a quote, this was his quote, I guess by now I will say I love Betty. <laughs> yeah, for a marriage, a speedy marriage and four kids later. I guess I'll admit that I I love it. He's okay. Yeah. I could don't worry. Um Yeah, and I think I don't know if it was is here that he talked about it. It probably was, but about, you know, some of the um I don't know if it was so much, you know, the way that, that a Muslim wife should be or if it was just the way that she worked for him as a wife as far as you know her ability didn't understand that he was on the road a lot would sometimes go for weeks at a time without being home sometimes when he was home um you know he would need to be in his office working and and she respected that and allowed that and so i mean even though the um the proposal and their their relationship early on certainly got a weird treatment in the book. It it does certainly sound like they had, you know, a relationship that where they meshed properly with each other. They were a good fit, right? Yeah. No, I, was, I, I think that had more to do with, um, I, I, I don't think that that was a specific Muslim thing. I think that was just, she was, uh, she was very dedicated to, mm-hmm. to the religion. Um, I think uh, he, he had said at one point, she was going to college to be a nurse, right? Yes. And uh, she had had funding to do that through her foster parents. And when they found out that she was uh, a member of the Nation of Islam, they cut her off. So she was yeah. doing odd jobs, babysitting, um, to be able to afford to continue going to school to, to do what she needed to do. Um, but also being an active member of the church as well. So mm-hmm. I think that her, her dedication to, to the church, um, really reflected in her dedication to his dedication or sorry, her dedication to him regarding his dedication to the church. Cause she, under, I think she understood gotcha. yeah, the sense. sacrifices involved. Right. Yeah. I For don't sure. think that was really, I don't think that was really, uh, an, uh probably the norm. I wouldn't say, but yeah, like you say, they really did. It seemed like when he talks about their relationship and the way they interact, they really were a good mix for each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the the end of this chapter, um, there is an event which kind of gets um, the Nation of Islam the most kind of publicity it's had to date, which mm-hmm. is when um, there were a couple of nation of islam members who were they were assaulted by the police is that right i know one of them had their scalp split open oh yeah how did that no it was uh somebody was was being confronted by the police and these two brothers of the nation of islam um were watching were paying attention and they were told to to disperse they were told Mm -hmm. to leave and uh they didn't leave and i think that was what prompted the the police brutality. Yeah, one of them ended up getting a nightstick to the head that split his skull mm-hmm. open, uh, and then he was brought into the police headquarters. And when um, Malcolm heard about this, he sort of 
got all of the 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 brothers of the the New York Temple together, and they all just kind of stood outside the police station, um, sort of making this this silent, nonviolent. I don't want to say protest exactly, but you know, um, they were a presence that was noticed, um, and they sort of waited there until they could get in and find out what was going on with the brother that was inside the station and until they were able to get him sent to uh, the hospital to get his wounds looked at. Right. Cause he, he went in and, and saw him and saw the state he was in and, and told the police officer like this man needs to be in a hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then said later that he ended up getting like a, a metal plate put in his head uh, yeah. was how bad the, the damage had been. Um, but having all of these um, black members of the Nation of Islam make their little stand outside of the, the police headquarters got them a significant amount of press coverage, and, and people started kind of showing some interest and in, in, in discovering them. Well, not just press coverage, uh, also just people on the street seeing... Uh, yeah, uh, true. Yeah, absolutely. Like 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 a group of black men standing up for, you know, a black person in custody, um, you know, having a show of support, um, standing in solidarity, and uh, they they had quite by the by the time they had reached the the hospital where the the brother was sent, um, they said that there was the group of the members of the Nation of Islam but also uh, a large group of, of just uh, curious black folk who had never seen mm-hmm. anything like that mm-hmm. before. Right. And uh, yeah, not only the, the news coverage, but just, you know, uh, the, the visual of it in, in, yeah. in, in the real life as well. Right. Like, yeah, I imagine at that time that would be quite a, um, like an image that you've never seen before and don't know quite what to make of it. Mm-hmm. That actually, I, I have seen the movie Malcolm X many years ago, and there are little subtle moments in, in the book where I am reminded of scenes from the movie, and this is one of them. Um, I remember that scene in the movie where they're all sort of standing lined up outside of the police precinct. But the the increased awareness of the Nation of Islam kind of carries us into chapter 14, which is called Black Muslims, uh, because that chapter opens with uh, sort of even more publicity on the way, uh, because there is um, someone wanting to do sort of a television documentary about the church, uh, and someone else is working on a book about the church. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. There was the... There was the... The the video... the, the book, Mike Wallace, but, I think, was doing a TV special. But there was also, I think before that, the uh, Reader's Digest article was a big one. Yeah, well, no, it was... The, the big media came after um, the TV special and the book, because the TV special... Right, right. Um, the TV special comes out and was called The Hate That Hate Produced. Yeah. Um. And and the word that everybody grabbed onto on that was hate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and at that point, the Nation of Islam starts getting some some backlash from uh, from 
churches, mm-hmm. uh, from the white community, and also from um, black Christians. As uh, Malcolm X described them as um, the, the house black people. Yeah, or yeah. the 20th century Uncle Thomas, yeah. Right, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, and then following that, the book comes out called The Black Muslims of America, um, which the the term black Muslims kind of ends up sticking somewhat to um, Malcolm's frustration because he wanted them to just be referred to as Muslims. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of in the wake of the backlash of those two things that the the media storm really kicks up that, yeah, there's the Reader's Digest article, there's like, you know, probably time and, and life. And mm-hmm. now Malcolm is, is getting brought onto um, television programs constantly. And he finds himself kind of reaching back to uh, when he was in prison, when he started kind of doing debates while he was in prison, you know, that was sort of his only real experience with that kind of a, a back and forth with somebody. Um, but, you know, he was going in sort of very prepared and, and um, trying to, you know, always calculate what the other guy's argument would likely be. So he'd be able to come in and, and take it down right from the get go. Mm-hmm. And how he found, you know, television programs would do such a kind of insulting almost job of introducing him that he crafted his own introduction that he would sort of cut them off with. Um, yeah, he said he would practice it in the car. He's like, this is what I'm going to say. And then, yeah. yeah. This is from the book. The program hosts would start with some kind of dice-loading, non-religious introduction for me. It would be something like, and we have with us today the fiery, angry chief Malcolm X of the New York Muslims. I made up my own introduction, at home or driving my car. I practiced until I could interrupt a radio or television host and introduce myself. I represent Mr. Elijah Muhammad, the spiritual head of the fastest-growing group of Muslims in the Western Hemisphere. We who follow him know that he has been divinely taught and sent to us by God himself, We believe that the miserable plight of America's 20 million black people is the fulfillment of divine prophecy. We also believe the presence today in America of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, his teachings among the so-called Negroes, and his naked warning to America concerning her treatment of the so-called Negroes, is all the fulfillment of divine prophecy. I am privileged to be the minister of our Temple Number 7 here in New York City, which is part of the Nation of Islam under the divine leadership of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. I would look around at those devils and their trained black parrots staring at me while I was catching my breath, and I had set my tone. But there was also an interesting bit earlier on from the period where he's sort of doing the telephone interviews. Um, and uh, again, this is from the book. The reporters would try their utmost to raise some good white man whom I couldn't refute as such. I'll never forget how one practically lost his voice. He asked me, did I feel any white man had ever done anything for the black man in America? I told him, yes, I can think of two, Hitler and Stalin. Right. The black man in America couldn't get a decent factory job until Hitler put so much pressure on the white man. And then Stalin kept up the pressure, (laughs) which is just, (laughs) okay. That's a really good way to shut down that that sentiment. Right? Absolutely. That was was a hot take. (laughs) 
Because, <laughs> I mean, how do you come back to that? Right. You know, it, it's you, you, you think that you've given him something. You're like, you know, you can't say that there's there's no good white people. You can't say that. Right. That's that's yeah. the question that they're asking. And he comes back. He's like, well, you know, but he comes back with the good white people as the bad, like the worst. Exactly. Right. Yeah. For for. And he also has a reason for saying that he's not just saying like, yeah, you know, Hitler and Stalin, whatever, you know, he's. He's actually given reasons why the existence and the, you know, the actions of these people have benefited black people in America. How do you, it's, it's a hard to argue that it really mm. does. Like, like you mm. say, like they lose their voice. It's like, how do you, how do you come back from that? And it comes back to his um, understanding of history like his his being well like very very well read on on mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. you know those situations and yeah no that was uh well i'm being a, an incredibly skilled speaker too like i think oh yeah um the the part in this chapter that shows him um you know having those conversations with the reporters who were trying to sort of paint the nation of islam as this very negative group and and to see how he responds and and how he tackles their questions. Um, he's clearly, you know, it was clearly a very very gifted speaker. Yeah, absolutely. No, very very influential person. Very well read. Um, very thoughtful. I think. Uh, mm. I mean, I don't agree with everything that that he said so far in the book. Uh, like, understandably, mm-hmm. for me, um, but. Uh, I've never once questioned his, um, him being genuine. He's always been, mm-hmm. it feels like everything that he does and says, is, it comes from a very genuine place, um, a very thoughtful place. Um, yeah, no, I definitely have a lot of respect for this man after reading up, up like to where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, what can you say about the guy? Very, very brilliant debater, very brilliant speaker, very just thoughtful person. And I think even too, when it comes to, you know, we were talking the other day about some of the uh, elements of the nation of Islam that are maybe a little bit out there, like the idea that, you know, white men are, are literal devils. Um, you can still created, kind of... Created, created by a gen, uh, geneticist what was it? 6,000 years. Yeah. Before. Um, but you can almost look at some of those beliefs and even, and, and find yourself going like, I can see how someone in the position that he would have been in, um, could find those ideas, um, meaningful and to get some kind of, a, a sense of profound purpose. Well, from it. And, and even believable, you know, um, you're going to look at the things that you've been through and learn about the things your ancestors have been through. And what's more believable that a regular human being is just capable of being that awful or Mm. that this type of being was created specifically to create pain. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I can, I can definitely understand how he would believe that, uh, 
that this white person, the white person that he, white people that, that he understood to be a, a creation. Um, uh, does that make sense? I don't know if that makes mm-hmm. sense. But I mean, even I mean, um, if you don't believe that they've been created, then you believe that just regular people are capable of such evil, which is uh, almost harder to believe. But he even mentions in an earlier chapter, looking at a um, a book on genetics. I can't remember who it was by, but um, I I looked the 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 name of the guy up, and he's considered sort of the 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 founder of the concept of genetics. Okay. And uh, in that book, it talked about how. Um, white people could only have come from black people because you, white is a, a like the white gene is recessive. Which yeah, I'm gonna throw out there. I don't know if that is still considered biologically true, um, but Malcolm X wouldn't have had access to the knowledge and the science that we have now. So if that's what was, um, if that's what was in you know, a biology book that was sort of being used to sort of teach genetics at that time, there's certainly, you know, some scientific um, support for just the general concept Yeah, that, you know, black was the original race and, and you could only ever get a white person from a black person. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can, I can certainly see how he would have been drawn to, to those beliefs and, and how, um, you know, why he would want to situate himself within that religion and sort of try to help it spread as he did. Well, and it's a religion that, you know, protects black people, Mm -hmm. you know, which is, you know, and and as he says often in the chapters that we're reading, um, Jesus is the, the, you know, the blue eyed, blonde haired Mm -hmm. person's God. Right. And, and that's also like, yeah, Jesus wasn't white and he he argues that and like, absolutely one, like he wasn't, but it, but that, that picture of him that so many North Americans have in their minds, I think does help. um, It's a representation that that white superiority. It's a representation of, of, of themselves. Right. It's, it's, it's a, it's a mirror of themselves. And yeah. when this they, is us, not you. Yeah. And they force that on colored people and colored people have, you know, like you said, the Christians, the, the colored Christians have been worshiping a God that does not represent themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and whereas the nation of Islam does offer them the opportunity, you know, whether I agree with everything that the nation of Islam taught or not, it gives mm-hmm. people an opportunity to look at God as a person that they can relate to mm-hmm. rather than a person other than them who, and, and yeah, that creates a dichotomy too, you know, like not, maybe not a dichotomy. Maybe that's not the right word, but if, and, and, and he does express this, when a a black person worships a white god, he begins to worship the white person as well, the person that reflects mm-hmm. that god, right? So it's one thing for a white person to want to worship a god that represents themselves, but it's another thing to force that representation 
onto a colored person. Does that make sense? Well, and he also talks about how um, the Christian religion's concept of rewards in the next life right. um, yeah. kind of allows for black people to feel it's okay to not get what they should be getting in this life, right? To be more accepting yep. of their position. And he often says, while the black people are promised heaven in the afterlife, white people experience and, and enjoy heaven on earth in their lifetime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's, anyway, there's, the, so many, there's so many layers to this. So yeah. many layers. It's not a cut and dry thing. It's not. It's not a. It's not a yes or no, true or false. It's there's a lot going on here. Mm-hmm. The uh, the back half of this chapter kind of spends a good chunk of time breaking down kind of a um, a step by step, really minute look at. Because at this point in the story, um, Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X and, and uh, bunches of people are traveling from city to city, mm-hmm. having these huge rallies. I, I never the got to the, I never got to the rally part. So um, you are educating me as yeah. As well, you continue like on. I said, I don't I don't have a whole lot to say about this because it is very much a a look at the really really you know a really detailed look at how these rallies went down. So. This is who would speak first. Mm-hmm. This is what Malcolm X would say. This is when Elijah Muhammad would come up and what he would say. Um, I will note that originally the rallies were uh, the only permitted black people at the rallies. Right. Yeah. Um, and he noted how big a deal that was um, to finally have this moment where, you know, um, black people we're doing something, then they were able to choose to keep white men out of it. And then gradually, um, they did kind of open it. Uh, they would have a little um, section of the audience that was set, away, set aside for white people. Mm-hmm. Initially, I think they were letting in sort of scholars, um, some journalists, um, but then, you know, expanding it to just sort of anybody who might want to drop by. Uh, again, it was still, you know, a fairly small portion of you know the arena or whatever that they were speaking in um but they did eventually start sort of letting letting some people in to to see what the rallies were were about and see what was going on Mm -hmm. and then um kind of as the chapter closes uh the year is 1961 um they uh they had plans for a 20 million dollar islamic center they were going to build so obviously uh, at that point, they had grown pretty substantially. Like they had, they've clearly got money. Uh, and then there's, there is, as was in some earlier chapters, a hint that there's going to be some conflict coming up between uh, Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad. And given that the next chapter is called Icarus. Yeah. Uh it does seem like um maybe some things are going to turn around. Icarus of course being the story of the man who had uh wings on his were they on his feet I think. They were attached with wax and he flew to the I don't know if they were on his the wings but yeah he had he had wings made of feathers and wax. Yeah. He flew yeah. too and close he, to the sun. He flew too close to the sun 
Yeah. Yeah. So sorry to oversimplify that. <laughs> That's okay. I was He's like, you just yeah, overlapped. Yeah, he you overlapped really... me trying to oversimplify. <laughs> That's all. He flew really close to the sun, and it didn't go so well for him. <laughs> I don't know why I thought it was on his feet. I don't know why I have that picture in my head. No, but. I yeah, no, I'm pretty sure it was just it, it was just straight up wings on his arms. What? Why on his feet? I'm curious now. Why did you think they were on his feet? I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking of uh, just thinking Prince about... Namor. In the in the Marvel universe, he's got weird little wings on his feet oh. for some reason. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm getting it from. I don't know, man. Icarus. Hmm. Now, does that? Uh, do you think that has to do with uh, himself, Malcolm X, or Elijah? Have you read it? You haven't oh. read it yet, have you? I haven't read it yet. Okay. That. Um... Like, which one flew too close to the sun? That's a really, really, really good question. Um, I am, I'm going to guess it's Elijah Muhammad. I would think so too, because like, as of now, you know, Malcolm's been very much, uh, like you say, supporting role, you know, um, very steadfast in his belief that Elijah is, is true to his word, that he is the, you know, the word of, uh. It's interesting though because like Elijah doesn't say that he is like himself the prophet. Uh he he you know he's always kind of up to this point separated himself from from that but yeah. placed WD Fard this person who I don't think anybody that Malcolm knows has ever met other than Elijah. Like you say mm-hmm. second hand, right? Yeah. Um but also I think that uh Malcolm also does disagree with Elijah's methods in some ways. You know, Elijah uh, preaches patience, right? Elijah preaches, uh, you know, the the slow growth. You know, that's what his his belief was for the for the nation of Islam for a long time. When Malcolm was was trying to, you know speed things up he wanted things to be faster he wanted things to be you know a little more uh intense and uh so it could be it could be malcolm x maybe he just took things too far and elijah didn't like that and uh he fell from the grace of elijah could be but like you say i i also think that yeah probably well, I'm basing it on um, what we were saying earlier about um, when Malcolm's brother was excommunicated mm-hmm. and how Malcolm said that it was for something that they'd later find out that Elijah Muhammad right. had been doing as well. Right. And that's got me thinking that that's going to be the thing. Like, you know, there's got to be some fall coming. He's the rising star of the mm-hmm. nation of Islam. And now something's going to happen that's going to, you know, melt those wings. Yeah. But we'll see. No, I. You know what? Yeah, like he's really foreshadowed that for sure. That there's something, mm-hmm. there's something coming that's gonna um, make us question the integrity of Elijah Muhammad for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess we'll find out next time. Yeah, and so I think for next week's pages, um, especially since we're gonna have two weeks mm-hmm. to read, um, but I think that should get us through to. The end of the book, not including the epilogue. Okay. 
So that's um, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. So 19 is the last chapter? Uh, uh, not counting the epilogue, yes. Okay. And that's about 150 pages. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Okay. Yep. At least 150 pages by my e-readers count. And we've been averaging about 140 per um, per episode. So I think that's good. Yeah. And then um, my hope is that the episode after that, we can discuss the epilogue and maybe also um, try to have a, a viewing of the movie um, before that recording. And we can include a conversation about that as well. How yes. Do you feel about that? I would love that because I have not seen the movie. Yeah. And I and fucking I have, love Denzel Washington. Time. Yeah. Oh, he's so good. So good. Yeah. Okay. But and I think it would be, <laughs> like I said, it's been a long time since I've seen it. So I would like to see it not just from, um, you know, an older man's perspective, because I would have been very young. Right. Um, not like a child, but just like, you know, when you're 20 something, you're like, oh, whatever, I don't care about this. <laughs> um, but also from having read the book as well. I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, it's been something that I've kind of like thought about doing, but have been holding off on because I, I figured it would be a part of this podcast. So, um, yeah, looking forward to watching the movie for like, for sure. But I think that'll do it for this week. Um, anything you want to say in closing? Uh, yeah. Sorry for being a scatterbrained fucking mess this week. <laughs> we'll forgive you. We'll forgive you. You mostly got through the reading this time. So yeah, I got through the reading, but then when it came to like discussing the reading, I was like, uh, you know, yeah. Okay. Nah, you were fine. You're brilliant. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. As always folks, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for listening. Now, why don't you go read a fucking book? Read a fucking book. God damn it.